Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex. I am a small-town pastor for a Lutheran church in the middle of Iowa, and I have uh, quite enjoyed this podcast for many, many years now. In fact, we're uh, just a few months shy of our fourth year anniversary, and so that is a huge accomplishment and so all I have to do is say thank you to all you listeners. You guys have uh, really shown your love and dedication to the show over the years. And so I'm much appreciative of that. And I hope you guys have been enjoying this series that we've been doing on the Lutheran and Reformed traditions. And I hope uh, I have been giving enough attention to the Reformed faith in um, working through the similarities and differences. And, and I think a big thing that I've kind of leaned more towards emphasizing are the differences because the the things that we have in common with it's just okay we agree let's move on but when we get to a difference and we have to explain why the lutherans and the reformed disagree and so i hope you have been um, enjoying that as it's been you know a nice trip down memory lane it's been one that's been helpful and edifying to me to come back and revisit this book and look at these differences uh, like I said, it's between Wittenberg and Geneva. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I've, I I read it in just a couple of days, I think maybe under a week. And I was doing it right in the midst of uh, finishing my master's. So it's uh, I squeezed it in because it had called it called to me as such a great interest. And so uh, I'm very happy that I did read it earlier this year. Now I'm going back through and revisiting these major topics in hopes that you as a listener can understand uh, where the Lutheran tradition comes from and how we view things. And I hope that even just through the greater scope of this Tuesday series, you have been able to uh, pick up and, and, and actually understand what has been going on in the Lutheran tradition and why Luther did what he did and uh, where the rest of the Lutherans come from. And I heard an interesting um, comment made by a Lutheran pastor and it was talking about how there are some things that Luther said and did in his writings that the Lutheran church doesn't agree with. And that's very true. There's a lot, there's a good handful of things that Luther talked about that the Lutheran church rejects. And 
it, you know, it could be something as simple as uh, Luther's view of pulling the altar away from the wall. So that way the pastor can stand between the altar and the congregation or it'd be the pastor and then the altar and then the congregation, the pastor would stand over it facing the congregation in most Lutheran churches the pastor faces the altar for a majority of the uh, service. That's a whole nother dive into an episode later. If we get into a Lutheran uh, liturgical worship series, but you know, that was such a minor disagreement that that really doesn't hit the radar for many people. And what I thought a little bit more significant one is, you know, Luther's view on the Jewish nation. Uh, Luther did not like the Jews and he, he had a quite uh, sustainable hatred, if you would, for him. Um, but I don't think it would be quite on the level of how much he hated the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so when we read some of those very difficult-to-read Luther writings, we have to just uh, see where he's coming from, acknowledge it, and move on. And, and I bring that to your attention because I just finished reading some stuff for school and you know, it, it, it holds no punches back. I mean, Luther was very um, direct and forward with his views of the Roman Catholic Church, the priests, the bishops, the pope, and all that, and how they have abused their 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 offices in, uh, in exchange for monetary gain. And so Luther makes that quite clear and how disgustful it is to him. So, you know, it, it when we acknowledge, like, how the Lutheran tradition comes to play and where you know where and what do we actually uh, adhere to luther some would say we we hold to the book of concord and that would include luther's large and small catechism and his small called articles that he wrote because the rest of the confession was written the apology the augsburg confession all of them were written by melanchthon and, and another group of guys and so if we were to say we acknowledge luther in all of the things that he taught, we would be um, really not doing a service to the actual Lutheran tradition. And so it's natural that people would see some things that uh, Luther had taught on and we don't hold to it. And that's okay. Uh, when we when we go back and examine it, the Book of Concord is our confession, and that is where we pull all of our stuff, you know, Luther wrote an extensive amount of writings in his time, uh, commentary on every book in the Bible, translated the Bible from uh, Latin into German. He wrote an extensive amount of works in letters to people. And I mean, he literally spent a, a good chunk of his life writing and, you know, to go through and possibly systematize all that would be almost an impossible task. And because he didn't do it. Whereas like somebody like John Calvin actually wrote the institution as a Christian religion. So we kind of have a, uh, a little bit more systematized view of what Calvin taught and believed. And Luther was kind of, you know, he never cared for any of that. His, his motion was explain the Bible and, and share with people who were struggling how they can have assurance in their faith. And so I, there's a book that I got, it's called, uh, counseling under the cross. It was a book that d dives into some of Luther's personal letters that he wrote to people. And in this book, it really walks the reader through, uh, how Luther handled, uh, grief and, and significant issues in that time period. So fantastic book. If you're looking for something that 
you can maybe pick up and read as a means to understand how to, you know, turn to scripture for a greater means of assurance than simply looking into your, into your own works, into your own behavior, things like that. So with that, uh, all kind of mumble jumble said, uh, let's get into today's topic. We have at hand the, uh, next chapter in our book and we are working diligently through this material and we are going to now uh, get into this um, next level if you would the of the next chapter of the debate or the significance between the reformed and lutheran views and we come to a topic that's interesting and uh, there's a lot of similarities, so we probably won't spend a whole lot of time digging into those things, but we will look at the differences between justification and sanctification. And again, you know, I, I wanted to do a show at the end of this on the on Lutheran's three uses of the law and why Luther doesn't care for the third use and why some Lutherans actually still do, which is an interesting conversation, but that'll come later. I don't know if I'll do a full extensive episode just on justification and sanctification from a Lutheran perspective. We've pretty much really hammered this topic well, working through the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, and we have, I think, done an extensive amount of conversation on this topic, so I think we'll just let this ride, and we'll just kind of uh, kind of run our way through this chapter, if you would, and... Uh, in hopes that we can touch base on some of the more significant things. So with the Reformation, at the very heart of this whole thing lies the doctrine of justification. For the Roman Catholic Church, justification came by faith, but also one's works. And for the Roman Catholic Church, it was the seven tiers of sacraments that you would have to work yourself through and not only that, but then you'd have to pay for indulgences. You'd have to buy these in order to save your relatives from purgatory or to save yourself from purgatory. And so it became a works-based righteousness system very quickly. And so Luther and Calvin and John Knox and all the other reformers, even Zwingli, they all agree that the Bible gives us clear definitive measures that we are justified by grace and nothing else. So it is through the faith that one gets by the grace of God that we are saved. There's no other you know, addition to be given upon that marker. And so when we talk about justification, we're going to start with justification, I believe. Um, we are going to view on the, the the definitive point in time. Sanctification will find ourselves having maybe a little bit more disagreements with from the Lutheran to the Reform, but justification is the one time act of which God is saving the person. It is solely based upon God's divine declaration uh, of the imputed righteousness righteousness of Christ and that matter is in which both Luther and Calvin and the Lutheran and the Reformed traditions agree. This unites us in opposition to the view of the Roman Catholic Church, as expressed at the Council of Trent, which sees justification as a process involving the impartation of Christ's righteousness. 
Medieval theologians differed from both Reformed traditions on the matter of grace. Faith was a fiducial trust. The foundation of the Reformation teaching stood in strong contrast to the view of the Roman Catholic opponents of Luther and Melanchthon, Calvin, and Bollinger. The exclusive role of Christ's death and resurrection emphasized by the Reformers made these opponents fearful that public order, society itself, would collapse if human merit played no role in salvation. Yet, the Christian life is more than justification. The New Testament presents a vision of the church as a renewed community of Christians, as those whose lives have been, uh, that our lives are different from those uh, that are non-Christian. That raises this tricky type of question in the relation of justification to sanctification of the connection between God's declaration that we are righteous in Christ and the practicalities of the subsequent Christian life. As the clash between Pelagius and Augustine in the 5th century started as a disagreement over the nature and practical Christianity, so the relationship between justification and sanctification traditions is also one with important practical consequences. In this matter, as it is to be clear, there are important differences between the Lutheran and Reformed. Nevertheless, there is common ground of a kind that makes fruitful interaction and mutual appreciation in a very real possibility. So here is Luther's uh, view, justification and sanctification, and this is where we pull ours. We're going to start with just this little clip, and then we're going to dig into defining justification from the Lutheran perspective. So the young Luther was hounded and haunted by the question of how to obtain sufficient merit to win God's approval and finally gain eternal life. When he entered the monastery and later began to study theology formally, his instructors only refined his childhood impression that his contributions were critically necessary to activate and facilitate the grace that God gives to those who do what they can to conform to his law. His reading of Augustine and scripture finally convinced him that God gives his grace freely apart from human merit, thus restoring the integrity and identity of humans as his children through the tr their trust in Christ. Nevertheless, Luther was drawn by the question of how he might find assurance and peace that, we, that he would not stray far from the grace and lose his salvation. Finally, when he came to trust the faithfulness of God and the reliability of God's promises, he sought answers to the questions of what it means to be God's righteous child in a daily life. Defining justification. Again, I'm not going to read all 30 of these pages. I just like to read the introductory paragraph or two, and then I like to dig into... Um, some of the high-level views as we work ourselves through this particular chapter. And again, as I'd mentioned previously before we really dig into the nitty-gritty, uh, the next chapter in this book is on baptism, so we're going to spend a little bit more time digging into the views of that, even though we did a whole series on baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're going to spend two more weeks just kind of high-level views. Those might, We might combine those two shows into just one uh, as we kind of work ourselves through the, the major points that we want to touch on. So defining justification, Luther chose to express his understanding of how he became God's child with one of medieval terms used for salvation, justification. To justify means literally in Latin to make righteous or just. To be righteous is to be right, to be and act ac correctly according to one who is. God is righteousness, 
And Luther discovered through his reading of the scripture, because he is faithful, loving, merciful, and a giving God who creates unconditionally, God comes to terms with his human creatures who have abandoned their righteousness or right, rightness as he created them by dying and raising in Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 25 through 26. Human righteousness or true human identity, faithful to God's design, his two aspects, Luther concludes, human beings are right in God's sight when they are trusting in him and depending on him alone. But God has created his children to love him, one another, and all creation as well. And to demonstrate that love in their actions, they act their active righteousness on the basis of their God-given identity as new creatures, his own children, their passive righteousness. Therefore, Luther believes that much of his confusion about his identity and child and God's child had sprung from a conflation of the two kinds of human righteousness and a vertical and horizontal dimensions of life and medieval theology. Scholastic theologians all regarded what makes hu human beings righteous in God's sight as their performances of the law, not simply his gracious favor. Grace might empower good works, but only the good works themselves render human beings righteous before God. Luther rejected this reading of Scripture. As Martin Comments explains in his examination of the Council of Trent, what separated Trent and its medieval bottles from the Lutherans was the answer to the question, what is it that makes believers righteous in God's sight? It is not their grace wrought works, he answered, echoing Luther. Faith may be certain that it has been a reconciled God had remission of sins, not because of the renewal which follows and has begun, but because of the mediator, the Son of God. It is the unconditional love and favor that God showed in first bringing them to his reborn children that causes him to be pleased with them. So Luther's view is breaking down the righteousness of a person after the justification. So he, he points to an active righteousness and a passive righteousness. So the God-given identity of his new creatures, his own children, that is passive. That is the, the means of God doing everything. The response then is our act of righteousness, and that is how we go out and do our works and love our neighbors and love God and do the things that would call us to be responding to something. That is the active righteousness that Luther gets into. So justification and atonement, Luther grounded and centered his understanding in the restoration of the righteousness in God's sight completely on Jesus Christ and trust in him. Jesus alone had caused and accomplished the abolition of human sin and restoration of the human identity as children of God. Thus, Luther's doctrine of justification through faith rests in his understanding of Christ's atoning work. Luther believed that Christ achieved the salvation by sinners by being born as a fully human creature, even as he is true eternal God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus lived the perfect human life in total obedience to the Father and the law, laying out the design for proper hu uh, good human living. Accounts of the atonement must take his suffering into account and his ascension into heaven and his coming to liberate people on the last day round out a picture of his atoning work. But Luther's proclamation of forgiveness and salvation and, uh, centered on the substantial sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross 
and his return to life, leaving the tomb empty, Romans 4.25, John 1.29. And the description of the suffering servant, especially in Isaiah 53, formed the basis of Luther's relating Christ's atoning work to the gift of righteousness to himself, to other believers through human history. So Luther's view is is going to differ a little bit here on the atonement process. And Luther roots his justification more so in his understanding of the view of the atonement. And I've had numerous conversations and with, with reformed folk and others uh, outside of those circles and trying to see how they view the work of Christ on the cross. And now we're not going to get into the substitutionary atonement theory and all that stuff, but there, there is this consensus amongst the, the reform that I've spoken to that believe that Christ only died for the elect and they, they will go and, and pull scripture for support of that. And then when you challenge this notion, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to step on toes, but I'm just bringing to light what I've had conversations with. When you, when you bring forward scripture that, you know, like is written in first John or the gospel of John or any other portion of scripture and say, well, you know, this text right here says that he died for the whole world. And they they would argue, well, that's, you know, only the people in the immediate world, or that's only the people that they knew of in the world at that time. And they try to limit and create some sort of confines to that, you know, or they will go to the extent that John uses three or four different types of uh, geographical areas when he refers to the word world. And they try to, you know, do these somersaults, if you would, to create some sort of theological doctrine. And, and it really, to me, it's like, okay, wouldn't it just be more comforting for, for the Christian to know that God sent his son into the world so that those who believe in him will not perish? And, and it's literally the blood to cover all people. And here's the other interesting thing. My, my view of the atonement is that Christ died uh, and his sins were sufficient to cover all of the sins of all the people in the world. And I can tell you this, somebody like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, he, there was a video put up on Facebook, uh, on social media, Instagram, and it was him making this proclamation of Christ. And the comment section was a little hostile. Because they were saying, how can this man do this? This is blasphemy, blah, 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 blah. And some people think, well, this can't be real. You know, Christ wouldn't save this type of person. But yet we, we, we have no problems accepting that Paul was a murderer, literally standing over the martyr of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. We have no problems with that. But when somebody who has committed some heinous crimes later in life, or later in history, and then comes to Christ after, you know, a reflection... We, we don't allow that. And I find that to be exceptionally uh, unchristian-like because we have always had our doors open to anybody and everybody, no matter what, whether it's a sexual preference that you differ from me on, whether it's a, a, a heinous past that you have had that you have tried to work yourself to redeem yourself and you've finally come to rest in Christ, whatever it may be whether you're a liar, a stealer, a drunkard, an adulterer, whether you have addictions to drugs or pornography or violence, whether you have murdered people or not, all of these people are welcome with the proclamation of Christ. And, and there is the, you know, the notion that they won't continue in those sins. 
they will struggle with sin still, but the ones that we would see visible or a label to a person, they would then move on from. And, and I, so I commented, um, you know, on the post and I said, you know, well, most, most people don't want to accept these very difficult things. And rightly so it's an exceptionally difficult video for a Christian to just be like, oh yeah, that's great. He's a Christian now because of the, the pain that he has caused in the past. But in reality, you know, even though we may not have physically murdered somebody, we've certainly caused our own fair share of grief and pain amongst others. I myself am struggling with it with my my family members. I have some who I haven't spoken to in f- over four years because they will not uh, accept my apology for a, a conversation that erupted into a very, very broken relationship. Uh, I've got family members who will not associate with me because I'm simply a Lutheran and I have contradictory views to their Roman Catholicistic view. I have family members that have rejected me because I am a biblical Christian. And in some of those cases, I have been able to reconcile and find common ground and rebuild those relationships. And that is fantastic. Praise God. But I know for a fact that we as humans cause harm and hurt to other people. And now I'm going off on this really long tangent, but I want to bring it back to this notion that for the atonement to work, that all people are, are, it's a gift to all people that even people like Jeffrey Dahmer, or, you know, I'm going to throw the wrench out there and let's say, you know, Adolf Hitler or, or Mussolini or any of these really terrible people through history. Now, history would show us that they never actually repented and, and put their faith into Christ. And in many cases there were the, it was the, uh, persecution of the Christian or the Jewish nation or both. And we would know that those people were not saved, but it doesn't, that doesn't take away from the fact that the gift of salvation wasn't given to them as well, because we as humans are a broken creature. We are sinful by, by nature. We are born into sin. And so for that atonement theory to apply for all people makes the most sense according to all of scripture, not just cherry picking some text. And you could argue saying, well, those who believe are the elect. And so therefore Christ only died for the elect. Yes, that is true. Christ did die for the elect, but he also died so that any person across any, across any background, any you know race or anything like that, even from other religions had the ability to uh, leave that religion and come to Christ. The invitation is open to all people. And so that's why, as a Lutheran, we we try not to philosophy the atonement and we just turn and say, okay, Christ died for the sins of the world. Now how do we go out and share the gospel with the world? And those who come to faith are the elect, and those who come to faith are who God has chosen. That's merely how we leave it. But we'd also go to the extent to uh, talk about justification in this framework of it coming through faith to those who are saved. And when we preach the word of God, uh, when we preach the gospel to people, that is what is redeeming people. That is what is saving people. That alone is how we uh, understand the, the act of justification. It is the, it is the one-time moment of making somebody right before God through the righteousness imputed into from Christ to us. And 
when we have that proclamation of faith, whether it's in our baptism or whether it's later in life, if we are a, a, you know, a later life believer, those moments are when we are justified. And we could argue, are we justified before life? I, I would venture to say we are justified either in our baptism or if we're not baptized as a child or an infant, then we, are, we, we can be justified at a later point in life. But the time period itself is really irrelevant. And, and I think some people try to get tied up in it. The time of when one is justified is irrelevant because it is a work that God is doing anyways to the person. You are passive in justification. You have no grounds and no rights in justification. And that is where the Lutheran and the Reformed agree upon. God is monergistic. And these two camps stand essentially in opposition to almost all of the non-denominational churches or the uh, Armenian churches, the Roman Catholic churches, and even Eastern Orthodox. Lutheran and Reformed stand united in the concept that God is monergistic and he alone is who saves. And then when we get to the conversation of sanctification, uh, we could argue that we are uh, ongoing in this process of being sanctified in a daily battle. And it's a, the daily renewal, a reminder that we are to kill the old Adam in us, drown the old Adam, and allow the righteousness of Christ to rise up in us each day. And so it's an ongoing battle. But the difference between Lutherans and Reformed in this category is where we will find some differences. We will see the Reformed say that we will be conformed to be more like Christ, and we will see uh, evidence of that in our fruit. And so the their view of sanctification will be this continuing journey from the point of where we first acknowledge Christ to our death, and we will see a, an improvement, if you would, of one's morality or one's ethics. And they will put an emphasis on that. And 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 here's the funny thing. Uh, I'm not going to get into the, I'm going to read the conclusion of this chapter, but I'm going to speak a little bit more from personal experience on this. Um, with the reformed view of uh, justification and sanctification, more or less sanctification, it is a high emphasis on one's morality, one's ethics. And, and I took a class earlier this semester on biblical ethics. And in that class, it was, it was very heavy Baptist theology. And so it was a heavy emphasis on living out the gospel call. And, and a major part of it was turning to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five and reading through the Beatitudes and, and trying to formulate how one could live in according to these values that Jesus is preaching on. And so for the for the Baptist, uh, which is where the school this class originated from, their view is heavy on morality and ethics, and it's and it's a means by which you can you can see evidence for. While the unchristian they don't care about morality or ethics, they they don't care that they're helping their neighbor, they don't care that they're doing good in the world. Some might, some might have, you know, a, a plateau of good morality and good ethics because that's been ingrained to them. In fact, as we read in Romans one, Paul writes that the rest of the world, the Gentiles have been given the natural law and placed upon our hearts. And so naturally most people would say, oh, I shouldn't murder, cheat, steal, lie, or kill or any of that stuff. I think I said murder too in there, um, but you shouldn't do those things. That's just like on our heart. 
the Christian sees the law and we see the reality of what the law does to us. And we see how our lives should be conformed into the image of Christ. And so for the reformed, they take sanctification into being more of an ongoing process that's going to happen day by day. You're going to get a little bit better over time. And in fact, I think flame says it, one of his songs that uh, he talks about the two types of justification, or I'm sorry, the two types of righteousness. And it's a, it's a song on uh, his extra nose album. I'm trying to think of the song 2KR, I think is the name of the song that I heard this line from, but he says, you know, the, the reform would look back upon, and I'm paraphrasing his, the reform would look back upon that, uh, the, the Christian and be like, well, why are you still struggling with that same sin? Shouldn't you be better now? Shouldn't you have put that sin to death? Don't you have the ability to put that sin to death? And funny enough, I read Roman, uh, the preference to Romans that Luther wrote and, and Luther makes this kind of little bold statement, um, about midway through, I think chapter seven overview. And he's talking about how the, the person, some may be better at killing their sins. Some may be better at actually mortifying or putting to death their sin, whereas some may not be. And, and it's just a matter of where the, you know, who's stronger. Is it the flesh or the spirit? Which of those two is stronger? And neither neither side of that takes away one's justification. And so for the Reformed, they're going to see that as a marker of assurance, and they're going to see it as a marker of understanding one's uh, movement towards holiness. For the Lutheran, we don't see it necessarily as this ongoing you know, process to uh, holiness. We see it as a daily battle. We see it as a fight to kill the old Adam, put to death the sin in ourselves. But we also acknowledge that there's probably a good chance we will still struggle with something. When we kill one sin, another sin will arise in its place. And I've had conversation conversations with other Lutherans. In fact, one of them, I'm not going to name his name, but he uh, would tell you his story that he came out of the LGBTQ community uh, a handful of years back and then went into the reformed Calvinistic view and then has settled in the Lutheran faith. And he would say that those things that he no longer has a desire to every once in a while, it peaks back up in his mind. And so for the, for the Lutheran, we would say that is stuff that the flesh is going to cling to. They find comfort in those things. And it doesn't have to be, same-sex identity. It, it can be addiction to alcohol or drugs or anything. Those those tendencies will arise in the back of our minds and, and draw and try and draw us back into that into that trap because the flesh wants to sin and it wants to not be a part of God's holy plan because it is born into sin. And that is where the Christian has the you know, act of righteousness in us to put to death the old Adam and allow Christ to reign freely in us. And we can make the decisions daily to whether we sin or not sin. And, you know, in some cases we just, it, it comes to a measure of where we don't even get to control it sometimes. And we fall into sin naturally, or we are able to withstand the temptations of sin. And that doesn't, and it covers a multitude of sins. So there is a significant difference in the sanctification process for the two camps. Justification is much more agreed upon. Um, and, and either side of it, I don't see that either understanding or view because I've, I've held to both. And now obviously the Lutheran view, but I've looked at both of them 
And, and I think either side of it is a fine application. However, I would always stress for those who are in the reform camp listening to this, don't just look at your assurance in your works. Don't look for assurance in, in your ability to, to be a better person. It will be an ongoing conformity to Christ over time, but your assurance isn't found in what you are able to do. Your assurance is found in the work that is done on the cross by Christ. And when you can look to the cross and say, that is, that was done for me, that's where your assurance comes into play. So let's just read this conclusion really quick uh, of the sanctification and reformed tradition. The The doctrine of justification is perhaps central Protestant insight into the gospel, impacting as it does not only the external shape of a Christian life, but also how we understand authority and sacraments. It breaks, it tracks back to the person and work of Christ and the forward to the expectations of the Christian life. It is, therefore, a doctrine that is important to understand correctly. Further given the numerous imperatives of the New Testament, and at least in Paul's letters, the position of these imperatives after his declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the question of sanctification and its connection to justification is also of vital importance. The Lutherans and the Reformed are on basic agreement on justification that it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, by the imputed righteousness of Christ. This distinguishes them from the Roman Catholics. Yet there are important differences. What the Reformed do, at which the Lutherans perhaps balk, is a move from this to an understanding of the Christian life that does place emphasis on growth and sanctification in the spirit-fed, spirit-led fight against sin. This is a tricky issue. The dangers of legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other side are never far away. But it does represent a serious attempt to emphasize both the glories of the Protestant understanding of justification and the role of New Testament imperatives to the Roman Catholic accusations of the Protestantism does not take ethics seriously. In the current climate of moral of moral chaos in our culture, this is surely no more important than the practical lessons of the church to teach. And so, as I mentioned, the Reformed will put more of an emphasis on their ethics, uh, even though the Roman Catholics accuse us of not, um, Protestants more or less, of not putting any emphasis. Luther didn't care for ethics too much, and his view of ethics were uh, much different than the understanding of how the reformed uh, viewed ethics. So that'll be another episode maybe down the road, but we should understand that it, the emphasis for the Lutherans, we place it on justification. And I would venture to say that the reformed will put more emphasis on sanctification um, while still having a heavy influence on justification. And if, if there are those in the Calvinistic or reformed camps that place their emphasis on justification, feel free to DM me and tell me. I'm curious to know. But when I was in those circles, it was solely on the, the sanctification of one's life. And in fact, justification was rarely talked about. So a little bit longer of an episode, a couple rants and some rabbit holes that we traveled down. And I hope you guys are enjoying this series. Again, we're, we're just a little bit more than halfway through the book now. Uh, that was the fifth chapter so we have six seven and eight left to go and so we only have a couple more weeks in this and then we will take apart and look into uh, the three uses of the law and uh, hopefully help articulate that premise a little bit better so that is that ladies and gentlemen we'll be 
back on Friday with another new episode. As this one drops, we should be knee-deep in a New Testament book. I'm very excited for that. We're going to start Matthew, and we're going to work ourselves through a gospel, and we're going to talk uh, exclusively about Christ. So, with that said, stay tuned for Friday's show. I hope you guys have a great week. God bless. We'll see you later. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.